two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, we take up a variety of topics uh, from the 2022 evaluation of corporate compliance to the new pilot program, to moral hazards in compliance, to some cases around, frankly, poop, and all things in between. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review this latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Granthart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and we are ready to talk all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG, governance, and whatever else is on our minds, and the minds, of course, of other experts in our field. This week, we're covering all the excitement with the new DOJ pilot program and the update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance, plea deals for CEOs in the U.S. and executives that escaped prosecution in the U.K., as well as a case full of bull um, cow manure. <laughs> but first, how has your week been, Tom? And what do you think is the most interesting development? So the um, new um, policies and procedures for the or from the Department of Justice, there's uh, a lot of detailed information in the 2023 evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Uh, this was introduced by Kenneth Polite. It was presaged by Lisa Monaco. And the, the two or perhaps three I would ask you to, to maybe consider and, and comment on, Christy, are the following. Uh, number one is financial incentives. Now, financial incentives are not new for compliance. They've been in the, every formulation of a compliance program probably since 2004. But what we see in the ECCP is that compliance must uh, actually perform a detailed analysis of corporate compensation that's derived or based upon compliance. And then they have to follow that throughout the company to see if it's actually doing anything or making a difference. Uh, those are things that uh, most compliance professionals, I don't think, have ever done. And that's generally seen in the realm of HR. And that may mean you need to go down and buy a very big pizza or the head of your HR, uh, or a very big pot of coffee, because I think uh, you're going to have to do some things you haven't traditionally done before. Uh, so that's number one. The second is uh, uh, clawbacks. Once again, not new. We've heard about that for maybe six months now, but there's some pretty significant uh, language in there around consequence management is the term the DOJ uses. And then the third one is something that, frankly, upon rereading uh, everything for this version of our recording, um, <laughs> there was language which said that the compensation of the investigators needs to be overseen and approved by someone basically who's not, they're not investigating. 
So that could be senior management. Uh, so the board may need to uh, look at the compensation of a class of people, both the CCO and compliance, but also perhaps if you have an investigative function or investigators in other departments, such as internal audit or uh, HR. And so those are the three areas. And I was really interested in, in your thoughts because you've sat in that chair and you've done uh, the work around financial incentives, but does this bring a level of, of detail and analysis that uh, perhaps is going to be more difficult for our brethren and sistren? <laughs> I like sistren. Um, so let's first uh, play the acronym game. So ECC key is Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program, right? This came out several years ago. There was an update in, I think, 2021. And then, of course, in 2023, there is yet another update. So it's very cool stuff that's happening. Um, oh, my word, incentives. I know that they have been in the federal sentencing guidelines since basically day one of the corporate compliance sort of mitigating effect. And it doesn't matter how many compliance programs reviews that I do. 90%, 95% don't have incentives. And we still get that pushback that, um, well, why should I compensate people for doing what they're supposed to? And I, my response is, why are you compensating salespeople for doing what they're supposed to in terms of like making sales, right? You do incentivize the behavior that you want. So I think it's really neat that they are putting so much pressure on this, but I'm not sure it moves the needle in terms of people really doing this. And, you know, clawbacks are really well known in the financial services area, but getting boards on board to make clawbacks part of contracts. I mean, I think that the DOJ is really asking a lot. And I think it's going to be tricky to get companies on board with these things. They just not wanted to. What, what do you think? Do you think this moves the needle? So in 2007, uh, I faced the issue of financial incentives. And so you're absolutely right. It's been around forever. And I think you can put them in. I think as compliance programs and CCOs have become more sophisticated, we've struggled with what's an effective way to measure that. And so perhaps this will give us some rigor around that. Uh, but the other thing uh, I think uh, really your remarks point to is I think the CCO can take this ECCP 2023 and, and have some significant conversations with both senior management and HR around their responsibilities. So perhaps it moves the needle a little bit because it gives the CCOs a written document that they can go in and say, this is what the DOJ expects of us and this is what we have to do. So maybe it gives, if not moves the needle, a little ammunition to, to move the needle. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, what's also really interesting in terms of what the DOJ announced was um, the signaling on ephemeral messaging, as they call call it, which really is around uh, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, um, all of those kind of messaging services. And you know, more and more business people really um, I, I see, uh, I was very surprised. One of my clients wrote me on WhatsApp and I went, I'm sorry, what's going on right now? Are you, you know, I felt almost like it, it was an intrusion. Um, but with a lot of people, this becomes normal, especially talking in groups um, on those kind of ads, um, apps. But the DOJ has gotten wise to this because obviously uh, that's where a lot of the 
informal ha talk happens as opposed to people being aware that their emails can be you know read and um certainly um when i was working on the libor investigation uh for one of the banks all of the good stuff came in the Bloomberg chats, right? That was where all of the good, juicy, interesting things, especially about people's personal lives, but that's a whole other thing. Um, that's where the, the interesting information was from. So the DOJ has really taken this to another level. Um, and they really, they want policies that require the company to uh, have access to these kinds of messages. They want backups. They want the ability to search them. Uh, and they also want to see if there is discipline around people who are not keeping these messages or who are, you know, misbehaving on these types of things. Um, and again, I think that this is really, um, this is, this is a big deal. This is something that companies don't have a lot of you know, uh, practice and, and especially if they're trying to institute something like this in Europe, I mean, I can, I can hear the screaming across the Atlantic about <laughs> privacy and my phone and you know, all of that kind of thing. I think they're going to have a real, real trouble with this. What, what do you think, Tom? I think people need to rethink bringing your own device to work. And my wife has steadfastly refused her entire career to allow the her phone to become the company phone. She's kept two phones. And uh, perhaps that's that's one step in the, the right direction because you're absolutely right on privacy issues alone. Um, it's going to be very, very delicate. And I don't think people are thinking about, gosh, they have access to my full phone. So um, how about we just say this one's to be continued? Well, it definitely is. But you know what? There's going to be much more enforcement, at least if, uh, Mon if uh, Ms. Monaco is to be believed. She and I think she probably should be. Uh, she announced a surge in resources, as she said, to the Criminal and National Security Division with more than 25 new prosecutors in the National Security Division. Um, and this came after Biden's uh, statement that uh, the DOJ is essentially seeing this as a national security threat. Um, all the white collar crime bit. So uh, there's also going to be a first ever chief corporate counsel for corporate enforcement uh, to investigate and prosecute sanctions evasion, export control violations, other economic crimes. So what do you think, Tom? Is the DOJ the new OFAC? Is OFAC the new DOJ? What are we, what are we looking at here with all these sanctions issues? Uh, I think uh, it's all risen to a level of national security issue that obviously puts it more important. It, it gets more resources as you articulated. And I think we're going to see more, I don't want to say cross enforcement, but certainly more cooperation. And the other thing is if we take this document and these speeches in conjunction with earlier speeches announcing the Monaco Doctrine and the changes to the corporate enforcement policy, I think the DOJ is really trying to encourage self-disclosure, but another reason may be to fight corruption. They have made clear in the sanctions and AML area, they believe self-disclosure can help them fight these scourges. So we may see more efforts around that. Yeah. And we have other friends who were talking about this, like Jeff Kaplan. Um, Tom, I know you picked out an article on moral hazard. Why don't you talk about that? So there's actually been a fair amount of discussion about moral hazard this week in a different context. And it's given me some insight into this. And it's around Silicon Valley Bank mm. and the bailout. And essentially, the commentary around Silicon Valley Bank is because uh, the Fed stepped in and said all deposits of all depositors would be backstopped and protected. Uh, that is a moral hazard. And so that put a little flavor around it for me. And so now I understand what Jeff was talking about. 
Uh, and a moral hazard is basically the the kind of catch-all definition is insurance, where you buy insurance, and does that make you engage in more risky behavior? You and I are both homeowners. You and I are both car owners. Um, you and I probably have some type of E&O coverage uh, <laughs> as well, even though we don't have law firms per se, we have consulting firms. And so insurance is a part of my everyday life. And I depend on uh, insurance to protect myself and my family, uh, but also shift risk, which is another valid strategy for insurance. And so by uh, having these questions raised, I'm not sure um, that we really are at a moral hazard moment for the Department of Justice in terms of uh, the question Jeff raised. And the question he raised is, is there a misalignment of incentives uh, from those who actually would benefit from corruption or illegal conduct as those who bear the risks? And while the alignment may not be perfect, uh, not everyone who's involved may be uh, punished or sanctioned. Uh, I think I don't see a moral hazard in the FCPA world uh, the way it's been used in the Silicon Valley Bank uh, story. So I understand his concern a little bit better. I don't think the DOJ has put itself or companies in the position of being a moral hazard at, uh, in any of these announcements. And I think the DOJ is trying to incentivize and increase the potential penalty on people um, for uh, engaging in an illegal act. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, Jeff Kaplan's article finishes with uh, performing a risk assessment on moral hazard. Um, I can only imagine talking to a senior executive and saying, I'm here to talk about moral hazard. And <laughs> just like stare back and say, what on earth are you talking about? How do we even, you know, categorize inherent risk and controls? And I just think, um, I think it's an esoteric idea. I can't imagine it kind of taking root, but I think it's interesting that he went in that direction. So there we are. As I said, I understand it a little better now. Yeah, I know. The Silicon Valley Bank, thank you for enlightening me as well, because I was like, oh, I get it, right? There's no risk for getting it wrong. We're going to take more risks if I'm a bank, right? I get it. I get that. Um, all right, let's shift away from the DOJ and go to a different uh, type of action, or at least from the most recent ones. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Ericsson and uh, more specifically about uh, an article that Michael Volkov wrote um, in a three-part series, but part three was really about the failure of the internal investigation and the failure from their outside counsel to turn over documents that they needed to in order to basically uh, comply with their DPA and make sure that they gave up all the information that they had. Um, obviously, this is a long and painful saga. Uh, the misconduct took place over 16 years, um, and Mr. Volkov described it as pervasive and systemic. Um, so basically, in 2019, Ericsson pled guilty, and uh, last week the company agreed to pay a criminal penalty of more than $206 million for breaching that 2019 deferred prose uh, prosecution agreement. So what happened was basically they, they didn't turn over emails, despite the fact that they had chains and turned over some of them, except not the really incriminating ones, um, due to their failure to disclose bribery payments and potential bribery payments to ISIS uh, to facilitate the transportation of telecom equipment in Iraq. That is not a good look for a company 
Um, in ter- I mean, you've been involved in these DPAs. Have you seen things like this happen? Do you think it's typical? I, I found it really pretty crazy. Uh, I-, I think that's as polite a way as you could say it. <laughs> um, the uh, reporting on this was just, just terrible. You have either the law firm knowing and not disclosing. You have the law firm either being told not to disclose or believe they didn't have the authority to disclose. Then you have clear knowledge at the senior executive level of Erickson of the results of these uh, investigations into Iraq and either instructing our outside counsel to do so or not. And um, somebody's probably going to have to pick up their phone and call their ENO carrier pretty soon. Yeah. Um, I, I just, uh, I can't fa- fathom a law firm having that information literally right before day of or immediately after concluding a DPA and not disclosing that. I, I've talked, every outside counsel I've ever talked to says exactly the same thing. The only thing I have is my credibility. The only thing. And that if I, if I miss misspeak, I can correct myself. But if I hide, if I facilitate or uh, fabricate, I'm going to lose credibility, and that will not hold true simply for that one incident. But you know, could it hold true for a long time down the road? And so that really keeps everyone, I think, on the straight and narrow. And I just cannot fathom how that happened here, particularly the way Mike laid it out um, and the timeline. Uh, I think there's a major breakdown here and I just don't know who caused it or, or how it could have happened. I just can't fathom it. Watch your internal investigators, watch your external law firms, make sure that they're doing the right thing and then try to sleep at night, right? If you're in one of these. And one last thing, when your lawyers go see the DOJ, you go with them. Absolutely. Absolutely 100%. go with them. Do not let them talk you out of it. You not say, oh, the DOJ might ask you a question. Go with them. Well spoken, sir. What do we have next? We have got your Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance with the Top Trends. So uh, if you don't read the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, please sign up for it. It is the best blog post on exactly what it says, Corporate Governance. It's a wide variety of contributors. There's some of the top law firms, uh, consulting firms, and uh, corporate governance practitioners around. And um, this particular article highlighted trends across the world, but I just want to highlight them for the United States. And I'd ask you to think about these in the context of the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, because I think they all really bore out some of the traits. Number one, board quality will be under the microscope. Uh, Here, Silicon Valley Bank, it was their risk function and their risk oversight committee. But I'm going to flip that to how many compliance programs or rather how many corporations have a compliance committee on the board? How many boards have a compliance asset, uh, a Christie or a Tom or a Mike Volkoff or a somebody either on the board or as an asset? Uh, Do you have the quality you need to manage your requirements under compliance? Uh, Board oversight over succession planning and CEO performance. Once again, a huge issue on Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Pressure on all sides for executive compensation. 
Uh, shareholders continue maturation of sustainability initiatives. We are coming up on board meeting season and shareholder meeting season. And uh, this administration has made clear they will allow and may encourage shareholder uh, votes around sustainability issues. So uh, even if you live in a state that doesn't support ESG, your shareholders are going to ask for it. And then here's the, the last one I really wanted to, to ask compliance officers to think about. And the title is so strange, The Aperture on Human Capital Management Issues Will Grow Wider. And I, and I say this with some seriousness because uh, half a dozen people I've talked to over the last six months have said the, uh, the acquisition and retention of talent will be the corporate differentiator going into 2030. Uh, whether that's because of uh, the new use of data, AI, the new tools that every business person is going to have to master and use, whether it's uh, the result of the uh, the great awakening or the great uh, a retreat from work and there would be less people to hire, uh, whether it is someone who can work uh, in today's environment, whether it be work from home, whether it be hybrid work environment, whether it be back on the road like it was in the old days, talent is going to be your key differentiator. And so human capital management at the board level and at the corporate governance level is going to be absolutely critical. And if we take it down to, to our level of compliance, um, whistleblowing, speaking up, corporate culture, it's all about trust. It is simply trust. And if your employees don't trust you, they're not going to do any of those things. And so uh, that's human capital management. Uh, it is not laying off all of the people you can the first time something goes wrong. It's human capital management. And so I think that's going to become even more critical as if it's not already as critical. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal today had an article that said the, the, the skills that every employer, employee should have. And I mean, it went on and on and on and on and on to Power BI and Tableau and Excel. And you should know Google Sheets as well. And you should be able to do, you know, AI and chatbot GPT. And I was like, this is what's Excel oh, and create fabulous PowerPoint slides. <laughs> I mean, this is 85 things that anyone's supposed to do. It's, it's interesting, though, if you've got one of those people, keep them. Um, but I think that, uh, that, that you're right. That article was fascinating. And, and for me, there, the trends going on in the UK and in uh, Europe, so much to do with ESG. I think that's going to be a massive topic as well this year. Um, and speaking of bad things in the environment, um, let's go to a definitely a different kind of environmental <laughs> issue, which is former Bluebell CEO uh, who pled guilty last week to misdemeanors over that Listeria outbreak. Um, this has got so much, there's so much interesting about this. So this uh, comes back from that 2015 Listeria outbreak that led to three deaths from a company I know you're very fond of and you'll talk about called Bluebell Ice Cream. Uh, basically, they had massive food safety issues and the they knew or allegedly knew about it um, going back as far as January 2010. Um, so they had this Listeria outbreak, all these people died. And basically, um, the, the the DOJ went after the CEO. Um, and they and they had a hung jury. Um, originally, it was supposed to be felony charges. Uh, however, the plea bargain that the, the CEO recently took 
uh, was for no jail time and a hundred thousand dollar fine. So that's a massive difference. Um, Tom, I know you feel personally affronted by what happened in Bluebell. Um, can you tell us your thoughts on this matter and, and whether the punishment fit the crime? So the punishment was a strict liability, uh, law applying to the CEO for what happened. And I think that was an appropriate, uh, fine and penalty here. The department of justice was not able to convict uh, on a felony trial, there was a hung jury in that case. Uh, Bluebell uh, ice cream. I guess the thing I would maybe like to emphasize, Christy, is we. you certainly talked about the tragedy of the deaths. We talked about the fine and penalty to the CEO. But here's the most basic reason for good corporate governance. Bluebell's been destroyed. This was in one family for 95 years. Mm. And they lost so much money because of the Listeria outbreak, their completely inept response that they had to sell the company. The CEO is now gone, Paul Cruz. Um, and the quality of the product has diminished greatly. Uh, it's now uh, private equity owned, and they don't, it's not a family business anymore. And if there is any better, there is no better example of what can happen when you have poor cor corporate governments. Millions were shelled out in a shareholder derivative action in Delaware, 60 billion there, million there. Uh, Bluebell itself paid 19.5 million fine and penalty for its corporate role in the Listeria outbreak and the response. Now Paul Cruz has paid this. The cost and attorney's fees, I'm sure, is multi multi-millions more. And Bluebell doesn't exist the same way it did before. So when people wonder, well, how bad can it be if I don't have good corporate governance? This is how bad it can be. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to point out um, that they didn't have discussions of environment, health and safety at the board level. I mean, there really wasn't any even discussion or paying attention to this thing that, frankly, if you're a food company, it does feel like thing number one on your risk assessment that you have, you know, not getting if foodborne pathogens, that seems pretty important. So focus on what matters, do that risk assessment. It's very important. <laughs> what do we have uh, next? We have leadership, uh, Tom. So you uh, picked an article called five hard to swallow leadership pills that will make you a better boss. Yeah. I hope our listeners uh, are as curious as you and I are Christy. And it, I see so much around corporate culture, doing business ethically and compliance, uh, doing business the right way, and tips for compliance professionals in a wide variety of sources. Uh, and this comes to us from Medium Magazine, but it could be Wired Magazine. It could be Fast Company Magazine. Magazines on entrepreneurs uh, are a great source of information to me. And I was particularly interested in this article on leadership because it's entitled five hard to swallow leadership pills that will make you a better boss. Uh, usually you don't get sort of this spin on leadership, uh, but here's number one, everything is your fault. Uh, having just talked about Paul Cruz, you know, perhaps that's a, an appropriate way. Uh, and as the article said, it sucks and it's not fair, but it's the truest thing about leadership. Number two, it's not about how good you are. It's about how good you can get others to be. And that that is, there's no greater statement about leadership. If that's not a great definition of servant leadership, I don't know what is. Next up, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what the company gets done. So choose progress over perfection. Choose action over ideas. 
recognize the time you have and get things done. Number four, best case scenarios aren't where you should focus. Certainly, uh, you can hope for the best, but plan for the worst. You've said, I think I counted four times so far today, risk assessment. Well, assess your risks. Put in a place to program to manage your risk, whether you're a food, food company like Bluebell Ice Cream, whether you're a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, whether you're a telecom company doing business literally across the world, Ericsson. It all starts with your risk assessment. So do your risk assessment and, and then manage those risks. And leadership is a habit. It's not a position. People won't, being the leader doesn't mean people will follow you. You have to earn people's trust. And I used that word trust earlier, and hopefully that's going to become a much bigger byword for us uh, over the next several years going forward. So interesting article from Medium on uh, leadership. Yeah, I don't think many compliance officers spend their time focusing on best case scenarios. <laughs> I think our focus is maybe the opposite too often. But um, yeah, I, lo I love there's a there's a quote in that article that I absolutely love that says, change the phrase, I don't have time for this to that's not important right now. Because we all have too much to do. There's never enough time. And the idea of, you know what, I know what I'm focusing on as opposed to, oh my God, I just don't have time for that. So top leadership tip from that one, I think. And speaking of leadership, unfortunately, our friends at the UK Serious Fraud Office, they had to abandon their prosecution of the former G4S executives. And there was some very interesting commentary on why that was. So basically, uh, two weeks ago or last week, they dropped their case against the former executives of that security company. Um, so there was alleged misconduct happened between 2009, 2012, and the company itself had entered into another deferred prosecution agreement uh, and agreed to pay the equivalent of 48 million and cover millions of costs that were incurred by the SFO. So like the DOJ, the SFO is trying to go after individuals because corporations as entities are do they commit crimes? No, people commit crimes, right? So um, the abandonment of this case was a really big deal. They uh, they already had 13, 13 separate hearings to uh, talk about disclosure of evidence to the defense. Uh, the Wall Street Journal noted that, quote, the SFO's abandonment of this case comes as the agency faces intense scrutiny over missteps, um, unquote. So what was this about? Basically, there's huge issues, according to the head of the SFO, about the framework that they have to operate in from the digital perspective and that it's basically impossible to manage. Uh, the head of the D of the SFO talked about a 1980s era disclosure framework uh, that frankly just isn't possible to get the right evidence and to turn it over on time or entirely. Tom, you know, I lived in London for close to a decade. Um, watching SFO prosecutions was really important, but very different from watching in the U.S. Um, do you have any thoughts about those differences? I rude the day the serious fraud office picked a yank to run it. I hope they never make that mistake again. Uh, I can't put this one all off on Lisa Osofsky, though. Uh, there seem to be just systemic issues at the SFO and the series of missteps they have made over the past several years. Uh, when Theresa May said she was going to fold the SFO into the National Crime Organization or National Crime Commission, I thought that was just an attempt to get rid of them. Well, they may need something. <laughs> 
uh, I just, it's one misstep after another. Um, they, it, at one point it was so bad, the cooperation between the uh, U.S. and the U.K., uh, the FBI got a SFO investigator fired. Uh, so it's just a series of missteps. And the SS, SFO is one of the top investigative and enforcement agencies literally in the world. And to see these series of missteps, and it hasn't ended because ENRC is still coming after them for uh, the Deckert and uh, that matter. So I think it's going to continue to to get worse. But please don't hire Yank to run the SFO. Please <laughs> if, don't. If you're not afraid of your regulator, that's a really big problem. So I know that's not good. Um, all right, uh, Tom, let's let's switch gears basically 100% to <laughs> one of the stranger articles that I've read or more frightening ones, which is about compliance in the metaverse. What do you think about that? Well, uh, first of all, if you're not aware of the metaverse, I'm sure you've heard of the term. I'm sure our listeners heard of the term, but please study it because it's coming. It's going to be a part of your world, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think Mark Zuckerberg is a fool or not, the metaverse is coming. And that means we as compliance professional need to be prepared. So um, the article comes to us from Susanna Sierra and the FCPA blog, and she has some three very basic steps. Uh, don't be left behind. Make sure you understand it. Um, talk about compliance in the metaverse. Uh, create awareness in your organization. If you're going to use the metaverse, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity, Christy. And it's a wonderful opportunity for the following reason. The metaverse is designed to engage customers. Now, the customers of a chief compliance officer are their employees or their third parties or anyone else who is utilizing compliance services. And if you can figure out a way to engage employees, you won half the battle. And um, Ronnie Feldman had a great line, which is, you can't train people on compliance if it's boring. Um, and the metaverse is not going to be boring. It's going to be engagement. It may be things like NTF that you may have questions about, but an NTF could be something that you could utilize to increase engagement if, with your customer base, i.e. your employees. Uh, if you think virtual reality is a hoo-ha, guess what? It's here. And just because people our age aren't looking at it or using it doesn't mean it can't be a compliance training tool. If you could have a visual of a bribery and corruption scenario, giving people specific lessons on uh, how to avoid those, that might be something that would engage your audience. So uh, I would urge compliance professionals to embrace the metaverse because it's going to be here. And it's I think it's going to give you ways to engage your employees or to use what my kind of tech wife would say, it's all about the user experience. Mm -hmm. If the user experience is positive in the metaverse, use that in your compliance program through in your education and communications. And I know Spark Consulting has a lot of different ways to engage employees and you are not limited to any one tool or your company's not, and you've developed new tools. And I see the metaverse really is almost an extension of what you're doing already, just going in a different direction. Yeah, I think that there's, I think it's going to be fascinating. Um, the, the thing about the article that shocked me was there was this quote from Gartner and they estimate that 25% of people will spend at least one hour a day 
in the metaverse by 2026, shopping, working, experiencing education, social media, or entertainment. Uh, 2026 is not very far away. Um, that's kind of an amazing thing to consider. Um, and imagining if, if people are shopping at our retail stores within the metaverse, if we're in retail compliance or, or coming and buying things, I think it's fascinating. I, I worked with um, the University of Idaho had a program where they were developing um, virtual reality experiences on the Oculus um, to try to put people in the actual scenario of being in a, be pressured for a bribe. It was absolutely fascinating. So I think that kind of thing where people are firsthand experiencing could be real game changer. So, you know, stay tuned on that one. If you had told me in 1992 that people would spend an hour a day on the internet at work, huh. I, I would have said they'll be fired. <laughs> Well, some of them probably should be for what they're looking at, but let's, you know, um, yeah, that's just the tool of the business now, right? All day long. Yeah. All right. So our last article is all about bull manure, literally. Um, so it, it comes from a press release in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of California. I just think this is too much fun slash terrible not to cover at the end of our uh, our day here. So the title of the press release is Central Valley Man Pleads Guilty to Nearly 9 Million Cow Manure Ponzi Scheme. It's pretty good, right? Um, basically, the tie into compliance is that this is actually an ESG story that's gone horribly wrong. So it involves a man called Ray Brewer who pled guilty to wire fraud, money laundering, identity theft, and running a multi-million dollar fraud scheme that relates to green energy. So what he did was he told his investors that he was building an anaerobic digester on dairies, right? Dairy farming that would use microorganisms to break down biodegradable material to turn it into methane gas, which could be sold on the open market or could be used as renewable energy credits that a lot of companies buy to meet their green energy regulations and contractual agreements. So there was just one problem. Uh, he didn't buy any of these machines. Uh, instead, he showed investors adulterated documents, fake contracts, loan documents, approving millions of dollars of loans he didn't obtain. Instead, he took those monies and transferred them into family member names. Um, when he was asked to pay back money, of course, classic Ponzi took the new money, paid off the old investors. And when those investors obtained a civil judgment against him, he moved to Montana and assumed a fake identity. So he now faces 20 years plus in prison and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines with sentencing to take place in June. So what do you think, Tom? Is this a particularly crappy case of ESG credits gone wrong? You know, if that didn't happen in the great state of Texas, it should have. <laughs> or Florida man. Let's be honest, that one could have been that one Florida too. man. <laughs> well, Christy, this has been great. Uh, I hope our listeners will join us again next time. And I am Tom Fox. I'm Christy Grant Hart. Have a great rest of your day. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.